Hey, Housing News listeners, have you heard? Registration is now open for HousingWire's Engage.Talent Summit of February 6th in Dallas, Texas. Join us to learn all about the latest tactics to recruit, develop, and retain the best mortgage origination talent. Visit engage.housingwire.com to register and use promo code HOUSINGNEWS2020 for $100 off. See you in Dallas. Hey, Housing News listeners. This is Allison Lloyd. I'm a reporter on HousingWire's editorial team, and I'm also the producer of this weekly podcast. Today, you'll be listening to our 11th episode, which features Thomas Sponholtz, the CEO and chairman at Unison Home Ownership Investors. This week, HousingWire's president and CEO, Clinton Collins, discusses the emergence of new alternative home ownership models, as well as Thomas's industry background. But before we listen, Clayton will bring you a word from our sponsor. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, the CEO at Housing Wire. And before we get started with this episode of the Housing News Podcast, I want to bring you some knowledge and insight from our sponsor, ArchMI. With interest rates at historical lows, with finances are booming, how do you win this business? It's simple, lower the MI premium for your borrower. The newest feature of Arch's innovative RateStar platform, the RateStar Refinance Retention Program, makes it possible. Eligible borrowers with loans already insured by ArchMI can refinance into new loans with a lower MI premium payment. Give your refi customers a better deal. If you'd like to learn more about how RateStar powers possibilities, visit archmi.com forward slash refi. The Housing News Podcast is now a member of the Industry Syndicate. The Industry Syndicate has launched a podcast made for mortgage and real estate professionals by mortgage and real estate professionals. Download the app from Apple or Google and join the community today. Thank you for listening. And here's episode 11 of the Housing News Podcast. Hey, Housing News listeners, this is Clayton Collins, and we're back for another episode of Housing News. This week with Thomas Sponholtz, the CEO of Unison. Thomas, welcome to Housing News. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, we're thrilled to have you this week. We uh, Each week, we try to bring on a new executive to, to learn about their background and also provide some perspective to some of the top headlines that we have had flowing through our newsroom. And uh, this week, we've actually had a, a lot of coverage about alternative homeownership models and, and co-investment and different alternatives that are popping up. So we're really pumped to get your perspective there and have you kind of share your views and commitment to the to these alternative models. But before we jump into the the meat of uh, alternative homeownership, we really want to learn more about you, Thomas. So uh, tell us who you are, where do you live, how did you get started in your career? I just we want to hear the story. All right. Um... Yeah, again, my, my name is Thomas Bonholt. Um I'm from Denmark. Um, I came to the United States um, uh, a bit over 20 years ago and um, has, has worked that time in the States um, all the time in housing and housing-related um, industries and uh, really very much focused on trying to innovate housing in the U.S. as well as housing in Europe, We're mostly focusing on 
either the consumer side or the, or the financial side. So you grew up in Denmark and moved to the States. Did you do your, your studies to become an economist uh, in, in Denmark or did you kind of begin that career path once you were in the States? What, what are the early years look like? Uh, my academic background was all in Europe. Okay. Uh, and most, obviously, the lion's share of my, actually, almost my entire professional career has been in the United States, uh, working for U.S. companies, but also working in, in trying to apply some of the U.S. techniques in the European market as well. Interesting. So when you initially came to the, the States to begin your professional career, I mean, what, did the, what was the first job? Like what, how did you put that uh, economist background and, and education to use? Yeah, my first job was really modeling um, different types of mortgage-related uh, securities because obviously as an economist, we spent a lot of time in spreadsheets and modeling. So, and, and that was, I, I got a job as a, the, the lowest person possible on the hierarchy of a U.S. investment bank trying to make sense of, in that case, in that, that stage, uh, collateralized mortgage obligations of CMOs, as we broadly call it. And I was kind of the lowest person on the desk doing everything from modeling to picking up burgers for the, for the people that work on the desk. I was the, uh, definitely the immigrant on the desk, if you will, Take, doing whatever it took to, to succeed. And... Um, that was I my first job. You played that role as well, so I know exactly, uh, I know exactly what right. you signed up for. As, a, as and those a, guys eat a lot of hamburgers, so it's a busy job. Yeah. I think I was more yeah. uh, had the Starbucks order memorized, but um, the, got the, it. Actually sounds like a good alternative. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, so coming from from Europe to the states and immediately jumping into to modeling mortgage-backed securities and other securities related to, to debt instruments and the housing market. Was there anything that surprised you or that was kind of uh, eye-opening about the structure of the, the U.S. housing economy from a, a financing perspective? Yeah, well, to, let me just take a step back. Academically, in my, my, I'm an economist actually in, in, in the developing economy. Developed, I think it's called third world economics, at least in Europe. So, and, and especially focusing on housing. So I've got a bit of a a good appreciation for the different structures of housing and what makes housing more or less efficient in different countries. And um, so in coming to the States, the, uh, definitely the, the United States is very long on financial innovation in general, much farther along than, than the rest of the world on the actual financial engineering, where the U.S. is quite far behind is in really the backbone of the system. And what I mean by that is uh, how an actual transaction is consumed, uh, how the title is held at the county's office, you know, how old fashioned and archaic that system is and hasn't been any, any innovation efficiencies made, you know, for, for hundreds of years. Like just most countries have a central registry of home ownership and property ownership. As you all know, in the States, it's, it's at the county level, recorded title documents have to be stamped by hand, you know, and, and you're still dealing in physical documents, where most developing countries now have, again, a central depository or registry of housing and transfers are done electronically. And that's much less room for human error and much more efficiency. So on one hand, the United States is very advanced on the innovation on the front end, the financial innovation, but certainly not on the backbone of the system. 
And then, as you know, each state has its own way of transacting in real estate. And, and real estate is typically regulated at the state level. Uh, so you have, obviously, with, with over 50 states, you, typically, you could claim you have 50 different ways of transacting rather than one way that is agreed upon you know, federally. So that's a little awkward uh, in the states, but you know, hopefully we'll see some change there. That's definitely room for it. I mean, so the U.S. being a significantly larger country than uh, than all of the countries in Europe and in other developed markets, uh, do you think that that different approach, state by state, county by county, to holding records and different uh, real estate transaction laws and processes is something that will stick, or, or how do you you said you anticipate change or hope for change? Like, what do you think change could look like? I think the um, that's that's going to be a more efficient way to hold title and change title of a property and record liens on properties. Um, that will change, in, in my opinion. I think that's a given. It's just a matter of when. And obviously, technology and the different types of um, of ideas around how to do that. Blockchain is obviously something that gets talked a lot about right now. That makes a lot of sense. Theoretically, and, and I think we're all trying to figure out how practically to, to also use that technology or similar ideas um, around that. And, and, and I'm not trying to use the word blockchain just because it's a hip term. I'm really using it more as a concept of an efficient way to record uh, ownership and change of ownership of an asset and, and, and attest liens. It, it doesn't have to be the blockchain technology by itself, but the idea of an efficient recording. Uh, that is accessible for everybody um, has to come. It benefits everybody, with the exception of the in incumbent companies that are obviously trying to protect that system from developing. But in terms of everybody else, the, the lenders would benefit. The uh, certainly the 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 mortgage-backed securities market would benefit. Securitization would be easier for the consumer transacting. It would be easier. That's nobody who doesn't win, but but a few companies. How do you think that potential innovation happens? Does this take a a massive VC fund making a big commitment to the development and, and rollout of this type of program? Do you do you think it could come through uh, through an incumbent who does a little tuck-in acquisition or who, who innovates internally? Like if, if you were to kind of look through the into the crystal ball, like in if we are really ever going to see a blockchain-based title system. How do, you, how do you think that comes to fruition? I'm going to put a concept out there, but as an economist, we're mostly wrong about those predictions. So <laughs> I, I want to retain that. I want to retain that disclaimer in this case as well. But one, one way could be that counties, that that's a solution being offered to the different counties to participate in. And so they still do the, the old fashioned end that they do today, but they can plug into a more modern system. And then once there's the critical mass of number of people signed up to that system, now we can take it to the next level of creating a central registry at that time. But I think the, it doesn't help the counties either to have to, to do this very manual process. So maybe that's a way to create a system that makes it easier for them as well. And then they will sign up, still do what they do today, but really record all transactions in addition to 
the recording today, record that into one system, and then at some point in time, that would gain enough momentum to have the majority of transactions uh, on that system, and maybe at that time you can migrate towards a central uh, registry. That's acceptable, right? So in the beginning, securitizations, for example, might not accept that as a good record. But over time, if it's proven to work, I think it will be. Um, it'll be a process. It's not a moment in time. We've seen in the housing it's a world, uh, the e-notarization e players kind of go exactly. state state and county by county, like breaking down the, the barriers to, to e-notary. In the, uh, the transportation world, we saw Uber go municipality to municipality. Uh, getting approval or just taking it um, in some circumstances. So it sounds extremely onerous to go county by county, but it, it's been done. But I, I get, as I think about it a little bit more, it's been by VC-backed tech, tech companies with a lot of runway and a lot of resources to, to knock down all those doors. Yeah, I think you have to do, you have to take what's there today. You cannot, it's not going to change in one giant sweep. Yeah. I think it'll go county by county and eventually win a state and then take it from there. Um, we also are seeing, I mean, just to be, just I'm sure you, most of the listeners are aware, many of the incumbent companies do have their own venture fund. I have invested in venture to make sure they are part of this, this evolution or revolution, depending on, on what side you're on. And so they do participate when it comes. So they could get a front row seat of the development. They're maybe not driving it, but they're certainly investing in it. Certainly. Okay. Well, so Thomas, let, let's transition a little bit. So what, what exactly is Unison? And, and our, our audience uh, is, is pretty diverse. Loan originators, real estate agents, brokers, executives from across the housing world. I think there's probably various degrees of familiarity um, with Unison in the model. So uh, if you can kind of start us at a, at a pretty basic level of what is Unison and, and, and what is the problem that you're trying to serve and solve, uh, it'd be really helpful. Uh, yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, think about Unison. Obviously, the name Unison um, refers to bringing somebody together at a, at, a, at a single point of time, right? And doing something in, in sync, if you will, or in Unison. And, um, the two things we bring together is really the, the, the right capital to the right consumer and solving the consumer need. And it, it, that's also the way our business is structured. We are, on one side of our business, we are a, a institutional investment management firm offering investment management uh, services to pension funds, endowments, summer wealth funds, and so forth. And uh, the, that's on one side. On the other side of the business, we are a consumer finance business helping home buyers and homeowners. And uh, so that's how we structured the, the, the value prop and also the solution for each of them. If we start from the investment management side is that residential real estate as an asset class is the largest asset class globally at 162 trillion and also by far the largest asset class in the United States with over 30 trillion dollars. It's, it's bigger than the stock and bond market. Yet, from an investor, investment standpoint, it has been previously impossible to get efficient access to the price development of this asset class. I think the same way as S&P 500 being a broad representative of, of uh, the stock market, right, as an index and the underlying stocks. 
you cannot create this and you cannot before unison came about and the mission on the investment management side is really to make the asset class of residential real estate investable in a highly efficient way for institutions so that's at the high level the value prop there and i'll come back to why that makes sense for institutions in institutional investor on the consumer side the 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 big bang and the big news there is really bringing the the old idea of equity financing to the benefit of individual individual home buyers and homeowners. And when I use the word equity, I use it exactly the same way as you would for company financing with debt and equity, for commercial real estate financing for debt and equity, or any other large asset class where you can finance with debt and equity. It's the only asset class of any size that didn't have equity financing before Unison created it. So equity financing, let's just define it so we all have the same definition. So equity financing is that a homeowner sells a piece of their equity today and receive a lump sum payment. And in exchange, they, they commit to giving the investor a participation in the future change in value of the house. So imagine you're buying, it's exactly similar to how you buy equity in a company. You buy a stock today and you get a right to participate in the future change in value of the company or the stock of the, in the company, right? Exactly the same for, for, for residential real estate. So what Unison does for the home buyer and homeowner is to bring equity financing and equity liquidity to the world's largest asset class. And that was never available for home buyers and homeowners before. And it's so obvious that it has to be available and it really should have been this way from the beginning. So if I, if I can just give you some real life examples, um, you can imagine you're trying to buy your first house and you're trying to buy a house in a metropolitan urban area in the United States, home prices are really high. And it's a daunting task to come up with a down payment to buy a house. And um, not only is it incredibly difficult to, let's just say, many in many big cities, a starter home is a million dollars, and that's a lot of money. And that means your down payment is two hundred thousand, and you have a you need an eight hundred thousand dollar you know mortgage. So, in the old model, you know you have to save all your money and then um, hopefully be able to get the house, or you have to go to your rich relative to ask for some help with the down payment. In the modern world that we like to think Unison represents is that you buy the house you want and then you have an equity partner that own the portion of the house that you don't feel comfortable with because it's too much money. Or maybe you, you, maybe you can have the money but don't want to put all the money in the house. Or you, you have half the money and you need the other half uh, of equity financing in order to, to be able to buy the house. Yet you have a mortgage, you always have a mortgage you're very comfortable with. We're, we're, this is not a suggestion where, or a proposition where we extend anybody financially, but rather it's more conservative because you get the mortgage you can afford and then an equity partner alongside with you where you as a home buyer is in control about how much money you want to put down in the beginning. And then as an investor, they participate in a portion of the change in value of the home alongside the homeowner or in unison with the homeowner. And uh, then if the financial situation changes for the home buyer, homeowner, then they can just buy Unison out at that time. So from an economics right. perspective, 
if we'll use the million dollar example for the for the sake of round numbers, um, if the homeowner potential homeowner is putting in hundred k, ten percent down, and Unison is putting in hundred k, ten percent down, is there a fifty fifty ownership over the equity value of that property, or do the economics work differently than that? Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Clayton. The um, in other equity, it would be. If we go in 50-50, we go out 50-50. That's the traditional equity model. Uh, in our case, uh, we actually tilted it more towards the benefiting the homeowner. So in the example of us going in 50-50 on the, on the equity, we each share 65% of the future change in value to the homeowner and 35% to the investor. So the homeowner is getting the benefit of, of kind of an additional upside. Um, whereas if they'd done a deal with their rich relative, they might have gone in 50-50 and out 50-50. But in this case, um, Unison's investor only gets 35% of the change in value and the homeowner gets 65%. And the, the benefit of paying down principal through the amortization of the mortgage, does that accrue to the borrower? Is that shared as well? How does how's the, the financing taken into account? Yeah. Uh, the, we only participate in the change in value of the house, period. So if the house goes from a million to a million two, we share in that in a portion, or in this case, 35% of the $200,000 change in value. All the equity paid down on the mortgage by the homeowner belongs to the homeowner. We don't participate in that. We only participate in the change in value of the house. So if the homeowner decides to pay the entire mortgage off, all of that equity belongs to the homeowner. And similarly, if, if you buy a house and make home improvements, which essentially means you're putting more equity in the house to, to build additional square footage or bedroom, the value increase in the property from the improvement that you make all belongs to the homeowner. Interesting. So it's a, it's, it's a very equitable, fair relationship. And we're able to do that because on the other side of our business, the investment management side, the portfolios we construct for investors is to get very efficient ex price exposure to the asset class. Our mandate from the investor is not to, you know, to, to cherry pick properties and, and try to squeeze out every penny we can. It's to get very broad and diversified exposure to the national housing market. That's also why when we're in 30 states, we have invested in over 1,500 cities together with 7,500 homeowners. So you can see these are highly, highly diversified portfolios. And that's really, so in many ways, it's an enhanced index fund on one side. And then to the homeowner, it's just a very fair equity relationship. And it's really, again, it gives the homeowner the ability to finance with debt and equity as they see best fit at any given time as a home buyer or existing homeowner. You know, if you're an existing homeowner that is trying to figure out how to pay for your kid's college, you can either take money out of your retirement account or you can maybe use some of this equity you have earned in your house. So make the equity you have in your house now being part of your active economy and active financial planning rather than this equity that's locked up in, you know, in, in bricks and mortar yeah. that you can only access if you sell the house. It makes it part of your active economy. Okay, so so Thomas, so is 
Unison playing exclusively in the equity component, are you also assisting borrowers with the by funding the mortgage or helping them place the mortgage? How do you play in the other side of the equation? We, uh, we don't lend money, so we don't provide the mortgage uh, in any way. We, uh, we provide our clients with a, uh, if they ask for it, we provide them with a list of the lenders that we work with, which are quite a few to say the least. And, um, and then they can choose who they want to work with. We don't get involved in lending at all. So, so, so you're not, not adversarial to the, to the lending world. So can you tell us a little more about the, the partners, the lenders that you have on your approved list and, and how loan officers, loan originators, and real estate agents should think about, should think about Unison? How, how should they think about uh, if their clients ask about uh, options for, for down payment programs or how, how should they be thinking about you? Because it, this is definitely a conversation that I imagine real estate agents and loan officers are going to have a very firm opinion on. Uh, so how should they be thinking about you? Yeah, uh, first, let's just make sure we remember that we have equity. That's, that's really two products, right? That's the home buyer product, where we help people buy a house in a, what we call a new and modern way. And then there's the homeowner product, where we help existing homeowners get access to the equity in the house. The reason I'm making that point is that there's very different ways that the customers and the home buyers and homeowners come to us and at different points in their life cycle as a homeowner. Uh, now going back to your question about on the home buyer side, uh, we're by no means we we basically make the lender more competitive. We're definitely complementary. We're and we're definitely not a competitor. We're very complementary to the lender because in many ways, and and I this is probably a lot of detail behind this, but in many ways the first mortgage is of higher quality if Unison is buying the home together with the home buyer and. I'd be happy to go into that in great detail, but that might be a little too detailed for this call, but just go with me for a second. The way it's structured is to the benefit of the homeowner and the lender. Imagine, you said, how do they work with us? Imagine the, a mortgage is very much a commodity product, right? Every bank, every lender has a mortgage. So from a, from a home buyer side, it, nobody's buying a house because they want a mortgage, right? They're buying a house because they want a home. So the mortgage is just something you need to get because otherwise you can't get the house. So, but there's so many suppliers and they're from the, from the buyer's perspective, the product itself are all the same. So it really comes down to what relationship they're comfortable with. So imagine a home buyer going into bank A. A bank A says, oh, you want to buy a house? Well, here's, you qualify for X amount of mortgage. And that means you can buy a house in this, you know, up to, you know, this amount of money. Now you go to bank B that works together with Unison and bank B is saying, oh, you want to buy a house? Well, let's talk about your financial situation and your goals and the kind of home you want and where you want to buy a home. And what we like to propose to you is a combination of debt and equity financing so that you, Mr. Home Buyer, can decide what, how much home you want to buy and what balance between debt and equity you're most comfortable with. And that way, you're really giving the control to the home buyer as to how he wants to finance the house rather than the old fashioned way of just asking them to pile on a lot of debt with no alternative choices. So, so it really enables the, the, 
the lender to answer your question now to decommoditize their mortgage business into a consultative approach to servicing the client rather than just offering a commodity where you're just competing on on you know on on interest rate and term so so i talk it's to lenders yeah, and loan originators every, every day and uh, one of the things we we have seen from a trend perspective is the terminology advisor become more and more of a the, the job title or at least the the, the public facing job title of, of loan originators as they seek to be that, that take that consultative approach to advising right. their referral partners and their potential homeowners and uh, existing homeowners on, on their whole financial picture. The topic of using debt and equity financing is something that I have, have yet to hear come up in those conversations with originators. So I, I get how this relationship could be bridged at the corporate level and how you can approach big non-bank in Southern California or one of the depositories in, in New York about why they should work with Unison. But, but how is that message getting out to the originators who are actually sitting across the desk or across the phone with, uh, with borrowers? Yeah, first, uh, Clay, we do work with all kinds of banks and lenders both banks and, and non-bank lenders, right? So that's literally thousands and thousands of loan officers uh, currently trained and, and uh, working with us on, on, uh, on home buyer. Um, clearly, we're not, we don't have full penetration yet. Yeah. And, um, and creating that awareness is always the challenge when you try to break from the inertia of an existing system with very established methods, right? So, so the way we, we to answer your question how we do it is we work our approach is that we educate as many people in the organization who wants to be trained and then we work very closely with the ones that actually want to use the product first right so and then once other loan officers see how that loan officer is becoming a lot more successful in diversifying their business and being able to tell a different story to their client when they're not just selling a commodity mortgage product, but they're actually telling a different story to the consumer because they're offering something new that's also better. It really, then they see that loan officer being successful and then it just spreads in that office. Typically, that's the way it works. It's really much like we talked about the title before, you have to go one by one. Yeah. It's the same. It's so one by one. Some of that, that word of mouth and, uh, and, and seeing the the early adopters have success and then other people replicating that, that model with the, the knowledge they hopefully pick up for your team. Okay. Exactly. So if, I, I if you're a commodity salesperson, again, I'm always a commodity, everybody's telling the same story, yep. right? What if you now can tell a different story that you're actually offering more flexibility and more control back to the consumer and let them figure out what is the best combination of debt and equity? Like for example, Telling the homeowner, you know what, you can't afford this house in the right school district for your family. And you can do it without increasing the size of your mortgage or your monthly payments. But then you, if you make that decision, you have, another, you have an equity partner. But you get to enjoy living in the more expensive house in the, in the neighborhood you want to live in. And then in five years from now, if your financial situation changes, now you can just buy units and out and now you own the whole house. Right. So now you have a choice, Mr. Homebuyer. You know, either you live, you know, everybody wants to buy more house than you always think you can buy more than you actually can. And this is a way to only buy as much as you can afford, but then have a partner for the other part 
but you get to enjoy the, the whole house as a family. And keep, let's keep in mind that the consumer is not buying a house to get the mortgage again, right? They buy the house to get a home. So you can help them get the home they want and the experience they want for their family and a financial package that doesn't stress them. So one of our, our most popular articles, most widely read articles from, from this past week by, by one of our journalists, Kelsey Ramirez, uh, was titled, Here's How to Use Fleck to Buy a Home Without a Mortgage. And, and for, for better or for worse, there may be some kind of grouping going on out there about putting all alternative home ownership models and kind of the, the new breed of innovative financial solutions to home ownership or, or renting into, into one category. Um, so I, I think it would be helpful to get kind of your perspective, Thomas. I mean, you've, you've been in this, uh, I mean, I, I would think of Unison as an alternative purchase model. Uh, in, in this business for, for 15 years. How do you think about the different categories of alternative solutions that are emerging out there, um, like in, in relation to Unison and then models like Fleck, which seem to be a little more focused on the, the rental side of the market? It's, um, you know, Clay, as we talked about at the beginning, the, uh, the entire housing sector needs a, uh, you know, a big infusion of innovation in order to better service the different needs and situations of the home buyer and homeowner. So I think it's fantastic that we see all these different models of obtaining a home, either by, by rent or buying, or different ways to finance it, make the transaction more friendly to the consumer. I, it, all this innovation is exactly what we need. And of course, over time, we'll see which ones. I think there's room for all of it, is my point. It is the largest part of the U.S. economy, as I said, at over 30 trillion. And it's 132 million homeowners, and they, we all have different needs and wants and so on, right? And so I think there's room for a lot of different models, whether it's, it's rent to buy, rent to own, a different twist on that and so forth, um, or whether it's Unison, or whether it's uh, you know, you have the different iBuyer programs where you can transact very quickly. And, and all of these are basically just segmenting the markets based on the consumer's need. And that's what we need because the old model of home, as I said before, has been if you want a home, you have to have a lot of debt. And that was it, period. And that's all changing now, right? So all these models, I think, I welcome all of them. I think it's fantastic, quite frankly. They're all just a continuum and servicing different needs. And the rent, the rent to own programs work very well for the, the rent to, rent to own are not offered all over. Like they're very much offered in very specific locations. And typically they are like locations where Unison are not offered. So we are, we are very much, we're most popular with homeowners in metropolitan urban areas where houses are somewhat expensive. That's where those are the clients. We, we can do it everywhere, but in all the states we're present, but it seems like the people that choose us are in metropolitan urban areas, whereas the rent-to-own typically are offered more in um, the less expensive markets. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I agree with you that seeing alternative models and uh, that serve the different needs of different of people in different financial uh, situations and with different financial goals is, is, is really good to see in the housing market. 
Um, I have to say your language where I'm breaking inertia. I, uh, I feel like, I feel like Unison and the iBuyer market have a much bigger potential of breaking that inertia with the partnership approach of, of potentially being someone that a tool or a partner to the, the real estate and, and lending world. Um, we, uh, we have a membership program at housing wire called HW plus and comes with a, a Slack community that our members communicate in. And we did a, a quick poll uh, yesterday about how the housing industry perceived Fleck and uh, 57% of the industry was angry about their, their approach to a no mortgage solution. And uh, it seems like that's how disruption happens. You, you have to make somebody angry, but at the same time in a, in a $30 trillion market, like, like, as you mentioned, uh, inertia is a beast. And uh, it seems to be something powerful about the partnership approach that, that you speak to. Yeah, I think, uh, of course, people are going to, people are upset with different models. Um, I, I just want to, again, speak about my own game a little bit. We spent years and years and years to not, to really bring something new to the market rather than trying to annoy somebody. Like, we're not, we're not a competitor to the lenders or anybody else. We are really something new you add, a new capability that should have existed all along. So, we don't have the, some of the issues that maybe some of these other business models have, but they're trying to they're trying to get market share for some of these established players. Uh, we don't have that problem because equity financing didn't or co-investment didn't exist before, except from your rich relative, right? And we're just trying to democratize the rich relative, so everybody has a fair shot at creating a more efficient way to buy a house and to get access to your existing equity in your house. So it, it's additive to the system. It's not taking market share away from somebody. So that's different business model have different challenges. That, that, that's um, right there. Democratize the rich relative. I, I like that. So, so Thomas, as, as we wrap up the conversation about alternative models and alternative uh, financing models, I, I have one kind of question as it relates to some of the other headlines we're seeing in, in housing wire right now. So how does the expanding credit box and potential changes to the qualified mortgage rules and down payment, programs and uh an impact on, on on qm and dti like are you how are you anticipating mortgage product innovation impacting co-investing or or uh co-ownership alternatives i have a strong personal opinion about this but it's an opinion um and that is well it's also a fact but maybe at least from my vantage point here I personally believe it is irresponsible to provide lending that is greater than 80% of the value of the home and offer that as a solution to a home buyer, a homeowner. And I'm saying that because there is, it's indisputable that the risk borne by the homeowner by, by accepting that type of financing is very high and frankly, somewhat irresponsible to offer. You would not go to your, you, imagine your stockbroker went to you and said, you should buy this asset and you should lever it eight times. And it's illiquid. And if, you, if it goes down in value, not only do you lose all your money, you also lose your home. And you also get a bad credit, so you can't even know, so you're in really bad shape on the other side. So this idea of providing lending, that just because you can't get a loan that's greater than 80% loan to value, 
it doesn't mean you should. In fact, it means you should not. And it, there's so much evidence numerically you can look at statistically that shows that the default rate just jumps dramatically once you get over the 80% LTV or loan to value. And, and no homeowner should accept that kind of risk. That's why we need new models. We need the flexibility to the homeowner to not be forced into these solutions where they have to accept crazy risk in order to do it. And lenders know this, right? Lenders do not want to lend more than 80% unless they get mortgage insurance provided because they don't want to take the risk. They understand it. So, so we need to get away. I think this idea of broadening and so on, okay. I, my opinion is that's fine, but let's also have really tight um, regulation around what kind of customers are really prudent to offer these kind of packages to. And, um, and I, I personally find home ownership to be one of the most important decisions you can make as, an, as a human. Right? It's a human need. It's not just a financial transaction. And putting that home with your family at risk by over-levering yourself, it's the place where you shouldn't take excessive risk. It's the place where you should be conservative. Because when the world falls apart, you still want to have a home to go home to with your family. So financially, I don't think your home should be a, a, a place you bring too much leverage into and take too much risk. I think you need to delever it so you're comfortable and secure the home. And then if you, are, if you are a gambler who wants to take a lot of financial risk, okay, go take it, go to Vegas or take, you know, do it in a stock market or whatever you want to do, but don't do it in your home. The home is the place you need to make secure. That always needs to be there. If you lose your job or God forbid you get ill, or there's other life circumstances. You need to secure the home is always there for you. So, so my bias, as you come over here, is that I think, okay, that's broadening of the credit box and this and that, but foundationally, we need to make sure that we help people get a home, not just a financial instrument. So a home, again, is a secure place where your identity is, your family is, and we need to create financial solutions that make that very secure and where the homeowner is in control. That, that is my response to that. I think we should never offer financial packages that owe and leverage the homeowner and put them in a situation. Yes, they qualify, but is it really the right thing to do? Well, Thomas, our mission at Housing Wire is, is moving markets forward. And a, a big part of that is, is furthering responsible homeownership and informing the, the professionals that, that influence that and help homeowners out every day. So we really do appreciate you sharing this knowledge about co-investing and alternative models to, to homeownership. Um, thank you for your time. We're excited to come back to this topic in, uh, in future seasons. I think there's a lot here. Thanks, Clayton. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for episode 12.